Like many cultural institutions, Flushing Town Hall in Queens had to quickly pivot to online programming in the face of the coronavirus pandemic. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. While its physical doors might be closed, its virtual doors remain wide open. I recently talked with Flushing Town Hall's executive and artistic director, Ellen Kodadek, a self-proclaimed hugger, about how she and her institution are managing in the age of physical distancing. We chatted via Zoom. Ellen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So tell me about Flushing Town Hall. What's your mission and what sorts of performances and exhibitions do you typically present? So Flushing Town Hall is a really beautiful historic building that's located in Flushing, Queens. And we are responsible for stewarding and restoring the building and managing it on behalf of New York City. And our mission is to present global arts programming for the global communities of Queens and New York City and to bring people together through those programs from all around the world. How long has Flushing Town Hall been around now? Well, the building itself has been around since the 1860s. It's about 159 years old. And the organization, Flushing Council on Culture and the Arts, which is our very lengthy official title, has been around now for 41 years. Let's take a moment to talk about the building itself because it's a beautiful building, Ellen, and it has a rich history, right? Served many purposes over the years. Yeah, I mean, initially the building was built to welcome the Northern soldiers back from fighting in the Civil War. So when the Civil oh. War began, what we were told is, um, you know, years ago, that there was no official send-off place for the Northern soldiers in New York, and there was no welcome place for when they came back home. So the, the village fathers and elders decided that they wanted to build this formal town hall just to welcome the soldiers back. And so they built Flushing Town Hall, and over the years, it's had a jail cell, the theater used to be a courthouse at some point. It was a bank. It was a municipal hall. So it was used in a lot of different ways. Right before it became an arts institution, it was used for a dinner theater. As I was mentioning, we have a jail cell right next to the theater. And that's actually where we go when staff have to have serious meetings. We go up to the jail. <laughs> Um, but that's also used for dressing rooms now when we have wedding rentals or if we're doing a, a theater or a music performance and that's used as a dressing room. We have mechanicals down in the basement, which used to be the rooms where the ammunition was stored many, many years ago. And we have this beautiful theater that used to be a courthouse. And then on the side, there's a lovely garden as well. So it's a beautiful facility and it's, it's very welcoming when you come there. So locate this for us. For those who've never been to this part of Queens, where exactly are you? Sure. So if you're coming by subway, there's only one train, which is a seven train. And the nickname for the seven train is the International Express. <laughs> because once you pass Queensboro Plaza, every single stop has a very specific neighborhood. Um, with lots of different cultural influences from different parts of the world that live right underneath and around that stop on the subway. So all you really need to do is get on the 7 train. And at some point, again, past Queensboro Plaza, the train goes overground. And so it's a really remarkable and very beautiful opportunity to see New York City from above the ground. And 
every stop is different. It's, it's just really great. So you take the seven train to the very last stop, which is Flushing Main Street, and then you walk over to Flushing Town Hall. Now, of course, Flushing Town Hall is a destination in and of itself, but the neighborhood is also pretty remarkable and worth visiting, right? It is. The neighborhood is great. For one thing, it's a destination for foodies. So many of us think of Chinese food, for example, in a very particular way. But when you come to Flushing, you're going to be able to get regional food from all different parts of China, from different parts of Korea, from... Um, areas of the world where you're meeting the Mongolian border and so there it has a completely different cuisine and in addition to the food there are other cultural institutions as well in Flushing there's a really beautiful Queens Botanical Gardens and if you go to Flushing Meadows Corona Park then you have five or six other cultural institutions that are located there so it's a really really rich and vibrant community Queens is the most diverse county in the nation. They say more languages are spoken in Queens than anywhere else in the world. How does that inspire your vision for Flushing Town Hall and the way you program your seasons? Well, given our mission, which again is to bring people together by presenting global arts programming, we um, curate everything that we do with our global communities in mind. So our immediate neighborhood, again, is predominantly Chinese and Korean. But if you go not that far away, for example, to Jackson Heights, you have an incredibly rich neighborhood of people who are uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, from Iran, from South Asia. If you go to the other side of the streets in Jackson Heights, the community is Colombian, Peruvian, Dominican, Ecuadorian. So they're so such rich cultures to draw from. So when we program, not only in our uh, usual season, but also for all of our education programs or exhibitions, we're looking to all these different community groups that inspire us to celebrate their cultural heritage. So we bring in programs that are local, that are national, and a tremendous amount of international artists throughout the year but often ones that are very representative of the communities that we serve. So when we're not social distancing, how many people can you fit into Flushing Town Hall? So last year we served around 73,000 people over the course of the year. Um, the gallery fits about 125 people. So our spaces are not large, but we have a lot of robust programming. So the gallery is around 125 people, the theater is 308. And what's fun about our theater is that we can pull out the seats and the risers in the theater so we can transform the room into a banquet space or into a festival space. And so you rent out the space too, right? You have the ability to yes. rent out the space. You mentioned weddings. Yes, we're often rented by the community for weddings and parties and meetings and for other nonprofit arts organizations that don't have their own venue, that don't have their own theater or their own gallery. So we're frequently used, which is why even though our spaces are relatively intimate, we can serve that many people over the course of the year. And we also do programming offsite in schools and in nursing homes and in outdoor plazas. So we go very much beyond the borders of the building itself. Speaking of outdoors, you have an amazing garden there, too, where you host outdoor events. 
We do. We have a lovely side garden and we've done all kinds of programming from hosting food festivals out in the garden to family events and activities to weddings and cocktail parties and all sorts of things like that. You also have a number of community partners that you work with, right, in Queens? Uh, yes, we do. And not only partners in Queens, um, but for example, we're a site for Carnegie Hall neighborhood concerts. And they present programming at Flushing Town Hall a number of times a year. We're also um, a site for the Five Boroughs Music Festival. So we're one of the Queens locations. So when they do programming in Queens, we're the venue where that happens. Um, we partner also with a lot of local different projects, whether it's Chaya, which is based out of Jackson Heights. They're a social service agency that works predominantly with the South Asian community to local Chinese organizations, whether they be social service organizations or arts organizations. Uh, so yes, it's a very long list. So how varied are the programs that you present? Are they mostly music oriented? Do you have dance? What else do you have? So we're a multidisciplinary organization, which means that we present something, a little bit of everything. So at any given time, if someone takes a look at our season, you'll see a wide range of programming that's not only multicultural and represents cultures from around the world and, and different kinds of traditions, but you'll also see dance and spoken word and puppetry and music and theater. List goes on and on. Um, we also have a space grant which provides use of the facility for artists who are developing work and that's artists in any discipline. So if you're a choreographer or a musician or a puppeteer or a videographer or a composer, you can apply to our space grant program. It's not a grant of money. We're a nonprofit, so we don't have uh, cash laying around, but it's literally a grant of space, which of course translates to money. Um, our shortest space grant was 24 hours because that's all that artist wanted was to do a staged reading. And our longest was a total of six weeks over the course of the year. And that was a space grant given over three years to a circus artist named Akrabufos. And the piece that they developed that started at Flushing Town Hall is now touring internationally. So we're really proud of that. You also offer education, right? Workshops and such? Yes, we do. We have a very, very robust education department. And in addition to workshops that take place at Flushing Town Hall, we also have school performances where the kids are bused to Flushing Town Hall, often for work that's coming in from overseas. Um, we have study guides for all of our school programs, family activity sheets for families to continue the experience of a program that they might have seen at Flushing Town Hall. Um, and we're in the schools as well. So last year alone, our education department served over 31,000 children, families, parents, teachers, and seniors as well. I was going to say you have programs specifically for seniors. Yeah, one of our favorites is a program by two puppeteers called um, The Memory Project. And we've worked with the seniors where they are making pop-up books and shadow puppet stages that are telling the stories of their lives. Wow, that's wonderful. It's really lovely. And the first time the staff saw the culminating event, we all sat in the back of the theater and 
we just passed around the tissue box because we're all crying. Yeah, yeah. it was really lovely. Okay, so let's get to the here and now. Ellen, here we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. All presenting venues have had to temporarily close their doors due to the pandemic. Many institutions quickly transitioned to virtual programming. What are you currently offering for audiences and families online? So it took us a little while to figure out exactly what resources we had. We certainly noticed that larger institutions that uh, some of whom had um, pre-existing digital departments and huge social media departments, they were able to pivot a little quicker than the smaller organizations. So what we're doing now is um, online programming called Flushing Town Hall at Home. And it has a variety of different types of online programming, online content. So twice a week at seven o'clock on Tuesday and Friday nights, we are airing pre-recorded concerts. So concert programming that took place in our theater in the past that's going up um, online and it's gotten a really great response. Uh, a lot of former audience, audience members and new audience members who've been watching some of this global uh, global concert programming and dance programming. We have been raising funds to pay our teaching artists to develop new content that we can put online. So for example, we launched four days worth of Colombian music um, and Colombian percussion programming. And that all comes with study guides. That's working with one of our teaching artists, Martin Bejarano. So every single day you get a lesson on Colombian percussion and how you can do that with materials that you have at home. We've also put up um, content in the same format, four days worth of lessons of Chinese dance. We recently posted pop-up book making that you can do again with very simple ingredients at home. We know that um, at least 12 schools in Queens are using our online content. So that's a great way to link to whatever curriculum your kids are now learning online, but they're also really fun for families to do as well. Um, twice a week, we're hosting community hangs on Zoom, and the second one is for artists specifically. Last week, we put online, we hosted our first virtual jazz jam. You know, it's kind of a very interesting world, and because our mission is to bring people together, this is a whole new space in which you can bring people together. You know, that's very accessible. That really eliminates the barrier of, of a ticket price. Um, you know, there's just so much sharing and so much opportunity. And it's really very heartening for all of us to see how the world has gravitated to the arts. In the I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say you are making this programming available free of charge, right? There is no paywall. Uh, that's correct. There's currently no paywall. We have been talking about putting together a trivia night, a jazz trivia night. And again, sort of exploring, is that something really special that we could charge, you know, $5 for or $6 for as a way to help monetize some of our costs? But we don't know yet. No, we're also, like everybody else, we're new to this. And we're looking at um, what are some of the models out there that are successful. But it's our goal always to be as accessible as possible, not only in terms of language, but also in terms of, of finance. 
about four years ago, we made all of our programs free for teens. So we already produce a tremendous amount of free programming throughout the year. Um, free to the public, not free to us, obviously, yeah. uh, to Zeus. Um, but that's very important for us to make sure that there's access. And so all of our program has been free for teens for years, whether it's a, a workshop ticket that would cost $5 or one of our jazz headliner concerts that would be typically a $40 ticket. If you're a teen, you can come to that program for free. So outside of having to have canceled your performances, obviously events that would have been held at the facility, what have been the other impacts of this pandemic on Flushing Town Hall? So like most organizations, our income has pretty much dropped down to zero. Um, throughout the year, um, I had mentioned that we're often rented very frequently as well for weddings and parties and meetings, all of those canceled. So that also became a challenge because for our institution, that earned income, that rental income is very, very important for keeping our small nonprofit going. So all of that canceled, but of course, what doesn't get canceled is the majority of your expenses. So you still have to make payroll. You still have to pay the security alarm system for this historic building. You still have to pay health insurance for your staff, the telephone bill, uh, the internet bill. We also spent a tremendous amount of money getting our staff up to speed so that they could work remotely. So some of our staff, for example, didn't even have internet access. They would go to the library or come into work to get on the internet. Some of our staff didn't have printers at home or laptops at home. So these are all new purchases that we had to make. And um, we've spent hundreds of hours with our freelance IT company. So I think one of the biggest impacts was not only figuring out how to move from working in a very face-to-face, in-person, um, working environment and uh, presenting environment for our audiences and our artists and, and how to move that into a new world online, but also figuring out how to pay the bills. You know, the bills never go away. That being said, what are your longer term concerns? Well, certainly a huge concern is keeping everyone employed. That's, you know, obviously very, very important to us. Our staff is really the heart and soul of our organization and of everything that we do. We want to make sure that we can continue to pay artists because they're also the heart and soul, really, of the world uh, and making sure that that they have employment as well. Um, And of course, trying to figure out what's the world going to look like when the pandemic is over, assuming that there are not which probably will happen, but you know, there's a lot of concern about repeated waves of the virus returning. So that question about when do people feel that they're going to be comfortable being back in public again in groups? What is that gonna look like? We do, for example, a lot of pre-show dance lessons. So one of our signature programs is called Global Mashups, where we bring together bands from totally different countries like Brazil and India, and they're performing together on stage. So we always have these robust dance lessons prior to a lot of shows. Well, dancing involves people touching and navigating around one another and perspiring and, you know, all of those things. So 
at what point are people going to be comfortable being back together in a space that's extremely interactive? And um, of course, nobody knows what that's going to look like. So we are continuing to investigate what kind of software and technology do we need to continue to be online and to continue to make those offerings even more robust, but then also trying to figure out what are audiences and artists going to want from us once we're all able to be back together again physically? Yeah, have you thought about what that might look like? Will you have to take the temperatures of people before they come in? Will you only allow half of the audience that you can typically fit into the town hall? Are those conversations that you're having? I think one of the things that we're talking about are what are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves and then going from there. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, the whole question about could we bring in a smaller audience? So we started looking at, well, what are the touch points that an audience member encounters when he or she comes into the building? What people do they need to encounter at the reception desk, at the box office, going up the stairs, the ushers, etc. Um, so figuring out the questions are, I think, we're really what's our starting point. It can't be easy to lead a nonprofit organization at this moment in time. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of hardship that you're facing. What keeps you motivated? What keeps you going every day when you wake up? <laughs> Well, I drink decaf, so it's certainly not the coffee, that's for sure. I'm very stoic, and I'm, and I'm stubborn, and I really, really believe in our mission. Our mission is very core, not only to my belief systems for myself, that bringing people together and celebrating and honoring arts from around the world. But as I mentioned earlier, when you look at what people are responding to online, it's all arts programming all arts programming and the arts are the way that a community tells its stories the arts are the way that people express their dreams and their hopes and their fears and being able to facilitate that and try to ensure that that's available in the world is what keeps me going is there anything or anyone who's inspired you through the crisis well, I think my kids and my grandkids, when I, you know, when I look at what they have to navigate, those parents who, who are now semi-working from home and have kids, you know, they're not trained educators, so just trying to get through what they have to get through, um, I think that's really inspiring. Certainly the frontline workers who have no choice and no luxury of being able to stay home during this time and are really keeping keeping the planet moving in so many ways um, whether it's a postal worker or a medical professional or um, you know the the delivery people the food shoppers it, it's really extraordinary and so I find that all really really inspiring you know some of what I have to do for work, I can do from my little apartment. And I can pick up the phone now, or I can do a Zoom call with an artist on the other side of the world, but I'm safe in my space because of them, because they're making that possible. That keeps me very, very inspired and just wanting to do my part, which is helping to get art out there 
so that it can be, you know, a resource and an area of, of healing and hope and self-expression for everybody. A lot of the headlines have focused on the struggles facing Broadway theaters, the city's larger cultural institutions, the big museums. Talk to us about why the city's smaller presenters like your town hall are so vital to this city. This distinction between big and small is often really frustrating. Small doesn't mean less valuable. Small doesn't mean less impactful. Smaller institutions tend to be rooted in a neighborhood and are very, very important for the communities that they serve. And the large institutions are marvelous. And I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm born in Manhattan, so I'm a real New York City gal and uh, born and raised in the city. And I'm really honored to be living in a city that has the incredible diversity of cultural institutions that we have here in New York. It's really astounding when you think about it. And of course, the big institutions that we have here are amongst, among the most renowned, magnificent institutions in the entire world. So that's spectacular. And yet the smaller institutions ground a community. And the communities are as proud of their local nonprofits or local cultural institutions in the same way that I'm super proud to have, you know, the Met or MoMA or the Brooklyn Museum, you know, Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall. So the kind of uh, services that a community-based nonprofit provides for its neighborhood and for the, the rest of the city is really invaluable. And for an organization like Flushing Town Hall, because our programming really represents the city of New York, represents the diversity that we have here. It represents the audiences and the people who live here and who work here and who commute here. Um, our staff is like a mini United Nations. And we treat all of our programming equally and respectfully um, in a way that's very, very special and it's very, very unique. So I think, you know, that distinction between large and small is um, something that I grapple with a little bit. How can people best support Flushing Town Hall at this time? Well, we recently started a program, a campaign called Step Up for Flushing Town Hall. And there's information about that on our website, which is flushingtownhall.org. And we launched it last week and have already raised a couple of thousand dollars, which is really crucial because, again, we want to keep our teaching artists paid to develop new content that can go online so that schools and families can use it. Um, we're also committed to continuing health insurance for all of our staff during this really difficult time. So, you know, helping to pay those bills that are really, really crucial. So every contribution is super welcome. And uh, we would really appreciate that. Again, it's flushingtownhall.org slash donate to step up for Flushing Town Hall, which is stepping up for the arts. And we are working on our first virtual gala. So usually our gala would be in June and it raises a, a substantive portion of our funding for the year. And we've not, never done a virtual gala. So again, we're in new territory trying to figure out what's that going to look like yeah. and is it going to be successful and um how's that going to work but that will be sometime in june so you can stay tuned and there'll be more information about our gala up on our website 
What do you most look forward to when the day comes when Flushing Town Hall can reopen its doors? Oh, wow. You know, it's funny, that question just <laughs> it kind of gave me goosebumps. Um, I think hugging. Hugging. I'm a hugger. Yeah. I grew up in a hugging family, so I'm a hugger. There's something about people being in a space together that you don't get when you're watching something online. You know, there's something about the breathing, the proximity of people, the excitement when something really fabulous is happening on stage. Um, the kids that come into Flushing Town Hall for the very first time often were their first experience in a theater and just, you know, some of the wonder in their eyes when they look around and, and they, you know, a few of them have asked, oh, is this a castle? And, you know, just that, you know, that kind of wonder that you get. And I think people are going to be, on one hand, tentative and a bit nervous about being back in a space together, but I think also so eager for that participation. And I just want to hug everybody who comes through the door. <laughs> and I probably yeah. will. It'll be a really long time getting people <laughs> to the theater or into the gallery because I'm going to stop them all for hugs. <laughs> Well, Ellen, I typically don't do this during interviews, but I'm going to do it now because this is a different time. I'm sending you a virtual hug right now. So oh, here's a hug you. for you. Virtual hug back. That's me <laughs> hugging you. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank well. you. Thanks very much, George. Ellen Kodadek is Flushing Town Hall's executive and artistic director. More info at flushingtownhall.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Stay in touch with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter at WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>